Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading is taken from Acts chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 1, and can be found on page 1093. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of the violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what is spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence.
Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far, far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. As we stand, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would indeed speak to us. And uh, we pray through the words of scripture that we're going to be uh, reading this morning. You would be speaking such that you pierce through to our hearts and change our minds and transform our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit down. And uh, if you could be turning back in your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 2, you'll find that on page 1093. Uh, There's also a uh, handout amongst the bits of paper you were given on the way in that you can use to follow along or make uh, one or two notes if you would like. Now, I wonder if you've ever heard of uh, somebody called uh, Joanna Southcott. Uh, Actually, don't worry at all if you haven't. Uh, In fact, it's good if you have never heard of Joanna Southcott. It's really good. It's significant and helpful and encouraging that you've never heard of Joanna Southcott, as we'll come back to uh, right at the end. Uh, But let me tell you a little bit about her. Joanna Southcott was a domestic servant in Exeter, who at the end of the 18th century claimed that she was the fulfillment of a biblical prophecy and uh, would give birth to a child who would rule the nations. She became known as the Virgin Prophetess of England. Age 64, she affirmed that she was expecting a child. Uh, The date was set for the birth, but then Joanna died without giving birth and uh, a post-mortem examination revealed no evidence of her ever having been pregnant. This I guess not surprisingly, wrecked the faith of many South Cottians. But some of them had decided then that what had happened, in fact, was that the child had been taken straight to heaven. And they continued to believe that for some time. Uh, Now that is just one example of many, many I could have given about some wacky religious movements that made a, a load of predictions and prophecies that then never came true. It happens all the time. 
uh, even in recent experience. And then when the prediction fails, uh, the movement has to come up with some other story. Uh, but I mention this now because, <coughs> excuse me, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, then I'm presuming that that's what you also think about Christianity. You know, it's very much like that. It's one of those movements, just perhaps on, on a bigger scale. I guess you think that perhaps um, Jesus was some, just some religious teacher. He taught about the kingdom of God coming very soon, but then he died and there was no kingdom. So then his followers had to come up with another story. And it's from that other story that Christianity, as we know it today, has grown. An invented story that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and will return to bring God's kingdom sometime later, sometime in the future, at the end of history. And even if you're here this morning and you would describe yourself as a Christian, you may occasionally have the niggling thought that that might actually be the truth of it. That might actually be the case. And that thought will sap your faith and sap your confidence. Is the Christian message about Jesus a false rumour that somehow got out of hand? Well, to answer that question, we're going to turn uh, back to one of the primary historical documents uh, preserved for us uh, in the Bible. Uh, The book of Acts, in fact. As we were saying a couple of weeks ago, the book of Acts was put together uh, by Luke, uh, rather like his gospel, And he says and claims that he put it together from reliable eyewitness testimony. And he got gathered that all together, all that he get get hold of and assembled it together in these two books, the the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So it's helpful to think about the purpose of Acts and each part of the book of Acts uh, to be this, to be reinforcing our confidence in the historical truths of the Gospel and also the sovereign power of the Lord to spread the gospel word in the world. And I hope we're going to see this morning that the purpose of Acts chapter 2 is to give us confidence that right from the beginning, Christian, Christianity has never been a movement invented by people. It's never been a movement invented by people out of their disappointment and out of their imaginations, like those other movements. The source of the expansion of the word about Jesus was, in fact, historically, God himself. He started it. He provided its content, uh, which is all about Jesus, and he empowers its effect, changing minds and transforming lives. So that's what we're looking for this morning. Confidence. Confidence. The kind of inner confidence that results in (coughs) a supernaturally bold and clear proclamation that Jesus is Christ and Lord. So like uh, fire investigators, we're going to examine the evidence now and find the source of this fire that has spread throughout all the world. Where, when, and how did this movement that came later to be known as Christianity begin? We're going to be reassured that when we go back to the beginning from start to finish, we find God at work. God at work, lighting the fire in the first place, setting everything off with extraordinary power. God at work in Peter, the apostle, explaining what God has done as he powerfully proclaims that Jesus is now Christ and Lord. And God at work through that message to cut hearts, change minds, and transform lives. 
So first, let's have a look at uh, that in three parts. So verses 1 to 13 of chapter 2. God at work lighting the fire. This is, if you like, the beginning of the movement that has become known as Christianity. This is the source of it all, the origin. And uh, I think we'll see here that it's all begun by God himself. And what we get, in fact, from these first 13 verses is a very vivid, very graphic picture right at the beginning of the book of Acts, summarizing what God has done and what God is doing. Three parts to that, I think. Firstly, you'll see there's this wind and fire. Verse one, it was the day of Pentecost. Uh, so called because it was uh, 50 days after the Passover celebration. So it's, a, it's the Feast of Weeks spoken of in the law. It's a sort of harvest festival. But it also come to be associated with remembering the, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Anyway, on this day, the believers are, are gathered together and they go through an extraordinary and unique experience. It's there in verses two and three. It seems to be something like encountering a great wind and being touched by fire uh, verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And Luke tells us, verse 4, that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, you may know that wind and fire are stock images in the Bible to represent the presence of God, the holy presence of God. So when Moses encounters the Lord's God in Exodus chapter 3, for example, he encounters a burning bush. When the Lord leads his people out of Egypt, he does so as a pillar of fire. When his people encounter him at Mount Sinai, what do they see and experience? They see and experience wind and fire, something like a storm. Whenever the glory of the Lord is described in the tabernacle or the temple, again, it's wind and fire. That's part of the imagery. And indeed, if you look over to Joel's prophecy uh, in verse 19, just on the other side of the page, you'll see that on the glorious day of the Lord, there will be what? There'll be blood and fire and billows of smoke. This will be the holy and glorious presence of God. Now, most of these descriptions of the presence of God in the Bible are simply terrifying. And uh, they terrified people when they came across them. So I want you to notice the remarkable thing that's happening here in Acts chapter 2. The presence of God comes as fire and wind upon his people, but they are not burned to a crisp. And this in itself is a little picture for us of what the death and resurrection of Jesus has achieved. A holy God living not just with his people, but in his people, and not just some of them, all of them. Indeed, not just living in them, working through them, working his plans and purposes through them. And uh, that indeed is the next part of the picture. Speaking other languages, a picture of what God is going to do. So the Spirit has rested on the believers, he's filling them and then enabling them to do what? Well, you can see from verses 5 through to 13, working to make God known in multiple languages. That's what the Spirit is enabling It's a very striking miracle. It's witnessed by many people from many parts of the Greco-Roman world. Just look at how carefully Luke has done his research here and got his geography right. It is to them, all these people coming from all these places, however, bewildering. It is utterly amazing. 
So right at the beginning of the book of Acts, we have here a vivid picture of what God is going to do in the world. He's going to bring people everywhere to hear about the wonders he has done and to hear about it in their own languages. So what we're seeing here is that at its start, at its origin, this great movement that became known as Christianity is entirely the initiative of God himself. Most uh, big movements, I suppose a bit like this in history, have come from some internal compulsion, internal compulsion to solve an external problem. But this movement in Acts 2 is uniquely all the other way around. It comes from an external compulsion. From the outside, it comes from God. And it deals with an internal problem, the problem of human sin. And then the solution goes out, out into all the world, through the spirit-filled believers. And that's the third part of the picture here. What appears to be drunkenness, a picture of the kind of believer God is shaping through the book of Acts. What does participating in this movement look like? Or to some, it looks like being drunk. Or rather, I should say, it sounds like being drunk. This is verse 13. Some of them, however, some of the people who have observed this made fun of what was happening and said, they've had too much wine. It's quite a provocative image in in, in some ways, isn't it? It might make you feel a little uncomfortable. Let me explain it. As you know, one of the things that alcohol Uh, does to people is depress or suppress their inhibitions the part of your brain that's saying don't do that or or, don't say that it gets switched off and everything on our minds and in our hearts simply flows out the effect of that uh, can occasionally be amusing Uh, more often than not however of course it can be deeply unpleasant because of course our hearts are full of filth and unpleasantness in fact the really troubling thing about alcohol is that the filth and unpleasantness is there even even when the alcohol is not But this is different, isn't it? But when the Holy Spirit comes to live and fill a person, things can change inside. From the overflow of the heart comes now the truth about God, the wonders of God. And in that way, the effect, of course, is very radically different from the effect of alcohol. But the effect is at least similar to some of the effects of alcohol in the way that the Holy Spirit takes away the inhibitions, the way he inspires a joyful boldness in declaring the wonders of God. That's what the book of Acts is all about, trying to do with us. So just as uh, at the beginning of the story, the multiple languages stand as a picture of what God is going to do in the world, so this stands a little, as a little picture of the kind of person God is going to use to bring that plan to completion. I don't know what you think about that. Um, I compare myself to this uh, picture, and I can certainly see some differences. For myself, often there's a, many inhibitions. Often for me, there is a, there's a lack of joy behind it all. But I should look at this, and I think we should all look at this, and find it in many ways quite attractive. A good way to be speaking freely, speaking openly, without inhibition, the wonders of God. But if we want that spelled out in detail, if we want an explicit pattern-setting example of what that kind of boldness actually looks like, well, we just have to read on. And here we're going to, again, find confidence that God is at work. This time, God is at work in Peter, explaining what God has done. 
Now, although this speech in many ways is at the heart of the chapter, Peter's going to say the essence of what he says here at least twice more in the chapters that follow and uh, chapters that we're covering in this series. So we're just going to look now at some of the main ideas this morning. And basically it goes like this. Peter explains to the crowd what they have seen and heard in Jerusalem that day at the Pentecost feast. And he explains it in two ways. First, this is verses 14 through to 21, explains what they have seen and heard as something which marks the day Joel foresaw. You can see from that quotation from Joel that the prophet foresaw a day when God would pour out his spirit on all kinds of people, sons and daughters, servants, men and women, and enable them to speak his message to the world in prophecy. So, my fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, says Peter, that is what you have just seen and heard. You might notice too that Joel also says that this will be a day when the judgment of the Lord and the need to cry out for salvation will have drawn close. And that'll certainly have got the crowd thinking. So that's the first way that Peter explains it. The second way is in the rest of the speech. Verses 22 through to 36 Peter explains that what, what they have seen and heard is all because of Jesus. And what Peter says here is the prophecy, the message the Spirit has enabled. And basically the message goes like this, as I've put it on your handout on the second page. This Jesus was accredited to you by God, says Peter. You killed him, God raised him. God raised him as Christ and we saw him. And finally, God declared him Lord. And then he poured out what you now see and hear. That explains what you now see and hear. Now you can see most of that in verses 22 through to 24. Let me read those to you. Men of Israel, says Peter, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter then adds that King David spoke about him in Psalm 16, hundreds of years before spoke about in verse 27 as the Holy One who will not see decay. But David can't have been speaking about himself, says Peter, because David died and he did decay. So he must have been speaking about the Christ to come, Christ Jesus, whose resurrection from death Peter and the other apostles have actually seen. Finally, in verses 33 to 35, Peter also claims that David wrote about Jesus in Psalm 110 where David talks about his Lord God exalting another Lord. Again, not David himself. This other Lord is the Lord Jesus, says Peter, whom God has exalted to sit at his right hand. And from that exalted position, says Peter, verse 33, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. That explains it. And the climax of that speech is there in verse 36. From what you have seen and heard, says Peter, you should draw this conclusion. Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. 
God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now remember, as we were looking at this, that all this came from Peter. Clumsy, tongue-tied, ham-fisted Peter. The Sylvester Stallone of the disciples. Uh, The one who only had to open his mouth to put his foot in it. And yet, here he is, articulate and clear, boldly speaking without fear or inhibition, the wonder of what God has done. So again, we have to conclude this was God at work. This was, so to speak, God setting off through Peter, through Peter's speech, the detonator intended intended to set off the explosion of this movement that has come to be known as Christianity. I suppose the first question we might ask is, was that detonation successful? And the answer here, verses 37 through to 47, is absolutely yes. And this is God at work again. This time, God at work through the message about Jesus to cut hearts, change minds, and transform lives. You can see the first thing these words do is cut people to their hearts. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? They heard and they were cut to the heart, or more literally, they were pierced to the heart, skewered by Peter's words. Why was that? Well, think about it for a moment. These are people who have come to Jerusalem, perhaps on a day trip. Maybe for some of them, it's a, a bit of a jolly. Uh, they've come to enjoy and celebrate with other Jewish brothers and sisters, being uh, God's people under his blessing, to celebrate the harvest, to celebrate the giving of the law. But what they're hearing from Peter is that the reality about their relationship with God is quite different to that. Peter is telling them that Jesus has been exalted as Lord and as that quote from Psalm 110 in verses 34 to 35 predicted, all God's enemies will be placed under his feet. That places you in a pretty perilous position if you have rejected Jesus, even if the rejection was only implicit or by association. Uh, It is a horrible moment, is it not? We know from our own experience, when you think some relationship is going well, you think everything's fine and jolly and rosy, but then you discover that it's not, that it's in jeopardy. How much more so when that relationship is with God? What can they do? Well, says Peter, verse 38, repent. That is, change your minds. Uh, Change your what you believe about the world. Conform your beliefs from the fantasy you were under to the reality. A reality where Jesus is not some failed cult leader, but the Christ raised from death, Lord of all. A reality where the coming of the Holy Spirit has marked the last days foreseen by the prophets and the judgment of the world has drawn near. A reality where it now matters very much indeed how you relate to this Jesus and where our future, one way or the other, is now in his hands. That's a a pretty big change in outlook. 
How are they going to express that in practice? Well, says Peter, verse 38 again, be baptized, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And that is, use the act of baptism like a, some sort of physical prayer of dependence and commitment and um, accepting that you have nothing to bring towards God. Uh, a dependence of what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection to bring you forgiveness of sins. That is, depend on him to turn you through forgiveness from being an enemy of God into being a child of God. Now notice there in that verse how the forgiveness of sins is so intimately tied to the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what the, the forgiveness of sins has enabled. We saw it illustrated in the miracle at the beginning of the chapter. The forgiveness of sins means that the presence of God, represented back there by the wind and fire, will no longer be terrifying to people, but will instead rest on them and fill them permanently and gloriously. And just as the presence of God in wind and fire marks the birth of a new community at Sinai in the Old Testament, so here, but actually even greater, as we were seeing this last week, lives are transformed and a, a new community is born, verse 42, a community devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We've just uh, moved house, as some of you know, and I, I thought uh, with lots of things to attach to walls, it was time to buy a new drill. Uh, my old drill was uh, deeply ineffective and, uh, for me, quite stress-inducing, and uh, it was, I think, probably putting our, our marriage under unnecessary strain. So I decided to really go for it and um, bought a new drill, and it is great. It is huge. It's... Um, it's a bit like a machine gun from a 1980s Rambo film. It's absolutely magnificent. It's, it's what's called an STS drill, which means that it can pierce through reinforced concrete like most drills cut through soft wood. It makes it wonderfully effective and deeply satisfying to use. But actually nothing like as satisfying as seeing this as the words preached through Peter pierces through reinforced hearts. And uh, just look at how effective this is. Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now you might be uh, listening to all this and thinking that we're now very distant from this event in Acts chapter two. It's 2,000 years ago now. It's a very different culture to our own. Peter's specifically addressing uh, people from a very strongly Jewish background. But let me remind you, this was just the beginning. This was just the beginning of something which spread through time and history and across the globe until it reached even the shores of funny little islands stuck on the edge of Europe, like Britain. And I look back to the time when I first acknowledged that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. In fact, it was exactly 20 years ago this month, October 1993. It was in an upstairs room in a house in Oxford. I don't come from a Jewish background. I don't even come from any sort of Christian background. But I was hearing things about God and things about Jesus and what Jesus had done that were making me realize that I'd got life and the world very, very wrong indeed. 
And the experience back then was very much like the one that's described in verse 37 here. Cut to the heart, pierced to the heart. I didn't have any fancy theological language to describe what was happening to me, but I knew that I needed God's forgiveness. I knew that I needed it right then and there. If you're likewise realizing this morning that the world is far from being what you thought it was, or even if you suspect that it might be so, again, now is the time to act. Make sure that you do something about it before you leave today. At least talk to someone. I'll be on that door on the way out and Tim will be at the back as well. But for those of us who have accepted Jesus as Christ and Lord, let's be assured by all of this. Be assured about the power of the word to cut hearts, change minds, transform lives. Be assured that you are part of, as a Christian, what you are part of as a Christian is not the result of some rumor or lie or fabrication that got out of hand. You see, we can look back to movements like that begun by Joanna Southcott in the late 18th century and we can pretty quickly I think see them for what they were we can investigate what happened and when those followers were disappointed and declared that Joanna Southgate's baby had been born but taken straight to heaven we can see through that claim there were no witnesses there was nothing to see there was no consistency with what was being said there with what was said before And indeed, the whole thing just fizzled out in the end and died, which is probably why you've never heard of her. How different then was the day of Pentecost? It was dramatically visible and audible. It was public. There were thousands of witnesses. The message was consistent and it was bold and it linked back to what God had said before, both in the near and distant past. It had a dramatic effect even on that day with 3,000 baptised in the name of Jesus and of course countless millions since. So have confidence. Have confidence that God was indeed personally at work on that day. Confident that he was at work in the miracle of wind and fire and multiple languages. Confident that he was at work in Peter and Peter's explanation of what was going on. Confident that God was at work and is continuing to be at work, cutting hearts, changing minds, transforming lives. And that is the kind of confidence that uh, I suppose sometimes might make people even think perhaps that we are a little drunk with it all and the wonder of it all as our inhibitions about telling out the truth about Jesus fall away. Well, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this detailed account of what happened on the day of Pentecost. And we thank you for its authenticity. We thank you that it uh, was public and seen by many. We thank you for its consistency. We thank you, most of all, for its power to really change things. And we pray that you would bring us to be a part of that. Help us to be a part of it, that we might experience the forgiveness of sins and continue to experience that as you in your Holy Spirit come to dwell amazingly in us. 
And that connection is there without any fear, just with wonder at what you have done. Fill us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.